My name is Glenn Dixon. I have been working here at the Hirshhorn in the Communications Department for um, almost three years. Before that, depending on how you count it, I spent 10 to 15 years as an art critic and an art writer, doing most of my criticism for Washington City Paper back in the days of what was essentially pre-internet alternative journalism, which uh, is something that does not exist any longer. Um, I also want to put in a little disclaimer that although um, it says over there on the sign that um, Christy very kindly made that uh, I am a Hirshhorn writer and editor and that is true, uh, for the purposes of these talks I consider myself a free agent. I do not consider myself a representative of the Hirshhorn. Um, the content of this talk has been vetted with by, by nobody. I have not uh, checked it out with anyone. Um, that is deliberate. This may get a little bit strange. It may get a little bit uncomfortable. You are free to leave anytime you like. But my perspective on what happens at these talks is that a lot of times you get the curatorial line. And because the curatoriate as a class has certain social rules that they must, must follow, their discourse also must follow certain rules. And um, as a result, um, the way that people talk about art becomes kind of distant and depersonalized. It's all very verifiable. Um, it's um, f highly footnotable. Um, I don't want to do that. I want to um, try to recover a little bit of what my process used to be back when I was writing alternative journalism. And um, I want to get a little bit of the art historical boilerplate out of the way. You can read this, but I also feel that there's a necessity to provide just a little bit of background. Um, Richard Art Schwager was someone who came to prominence in the mid-1960s when he was already in his early 40s. Um, in the space of about five years, his work um, fell under the rubrics of pop and minimalism and conceptualism. Um, when he showed at Leo Castelli in 1964. He was immediately put into a group show with Andy Warhol and uh, Roy Lichtenstein and um, I believe Rosenquist, um, James Rosenquist. Um, the next year in 1965, he got a solo show at Castelli. Um, that same year in 1965, he was included among a very large roster of artists in Donald Judd's um, essay, Specific Objects, and we'll get back to that a little bit later. It tried to identify what was then perceived as sort of a crisis in the nature of the art object as something that was neither fish nor fowl, neither painting nor sculpture, but something else entirely. Um, and in 1966, he was included in Primary Structures, which was the Jewish Museum's groundbreaking show of minimal art. Um, in 1969, he was included in the uh, Kunsthalle Barons Live in Your Head When Attitudes Become Forms, which was um, just a groundbreaking show in terms of identifying uh, strains of conceptual art and environmental art. And um, so he's kind of known both as an artist's artist, the kind of person that lots of artists like to follow, and um, also as something of an insider's outsider, uh, someone who could be attached to various trends and who always was very successful. He um, had the highest profile dealers for basically his entire career. He died just a few weeks ago at the age of 89, and he showed first with Leo Castelli, then with Mary Boone, then with Larry Gagosian. So 
this is not an overlooked figure by any means. Um, he's also someone um, who is sort of deliberately hard to deal with. I work in the communications department and there are a couple of things that we sort of have to deal with all the time when we're trying to make art approachable. And um, I was ragging on the way the curatoriate writes and the way that communications offices write press releases, and I'm responsible for that, is also denatured because we're trying to impart information about art without telling anyone what to think. And uh, so there is a threshold beyond which we cannot insert our own personal reactions. And um, this is going to be all about my personal reactions to Art Schwager's work. Um, so first I, I want to um, just look at this thing a little bit. One thing that's significant about it is that it is a Formica wall relief and uh, Art Schwager very famously and in almost every essay you read about him, this will show up, but he called Formica the um, great ugly material, the horror of the age. And this was something that, um, and coincidentally, um, 1913 was the year of the Armory Show, and that's the big anniversary that the art world is observing this year, the um, centenary of um, sort of modern art getting a foothold in New York and in, um, in the United States. 1913 was also the year that Formica was invented, and it was called Formica because it was a substitute for mica. Um, it, <laughs> it, it has nothing to do with ants, if you're thinking of formic acid. Um, but uh, mica was used in various industrial processes for uh, its insulating qualities. And it turns out that the original formulation of formica was a great insulator. And I imagine this stuff still is, and probably whatever is on um, countertops right now still does not conduct electricity very well. Um, but also it had certain decorative uh, possibilities. It's possible, like if you get up close and look at it, you can see that the surface of this um, is essentially photographic. Um, you've got this burled walnut pattern, um, and it's fake, but it's ostentatiously fake. It's deliberately fake. It even has repeats in it. Boom, 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 like a wallpaper pattern. Um, and one of the questions we always deal with with neophytes to contemporary art is, is the artist messing with me? And the answer is yes, Art Schwager is messing with you. Um, but that's not enough to forestall more discussion. The question is, how is he messing with you? What does it mean for him to mess with you? And um, another thing you should know about burled walnut, because um, even though this is fake burled walnut, it still refers to it, is that um, it is the product of disease. It is desirable because it is sick. Um, so what you have is this thing that um, is very rigorously engineered. Um, Art Schwager had a career as um, a furniture maker before he became a fine artist. And so his pieces are very well made. Um, and very well thought out. And he had a background in math and science and a degree in physical sciences from Cornell. And so, but he turned his back on all that to become an artist. And I think there's um, a certain sensibility that you get from someone who was trained in very rigorous processes of observation, who then decides that he doesn't want 
verifiability. He doesn't want repeatability. He wants to be able to make something that's definite, but that still has a certain amount of uncertainty built into it. Um, when I sent out a tweet a couple of days ago, um, I decided I was going to call this talk the untrustworthy object. I have a thing for geometric abstraction that um, sort of leads you down the garden path that um, thwarts expectations. If you remember the Ann Truitt show that was here back in, I guess, around 2009, um, there was this sculpture, basically her first mature sculpture, called First, that was made to look like a short segment of a picket fence, except it defied the regularity of a picket fence, which is part of what gives it a, its charm, and B, has made it a symbol for conformity and order. The points were not cut the same. The slats were not the same width. Um, the points were cut off center, and this is all in the space of three slats, and the spaces in between the slats were not conforming to the expected pattern. I like stuff like that. My favorite Ellsworth Kelly is over at the Corcoran, and um, I believe it's called Yellow Rectangle and Red Triangle. It's from 1973, and you've got this big rectangle coming down like this with the corner there, and then you've got a triangle sort of on its point here, and the triangle to me looks like it's more orange than red, but what I love about it is that I am almost there is kind of an exquisite agony about the shape of that triangle. It wants to be equilateral. It wants to conform to the platonic ideal. It wants to be metaphysical the way that mathematics is, but it's a phenomenological object. And there's um, just... The triangle, I'm almost certain, is scalene. No, no, no two sides equal, as opposed to equilateral, where you have three 60-degree angles, three equal sides, you know, and it's just the simplest and most perfect um, polygon. Um, and, but what I love is the tension of that, the way that that triangle wants to be better than it is, wants to be more regular than it is, wants to be more perfect than it is. And as rigorous a um, geometer as Ellsworth Kelly is, um, that's not really, I think, what he had in mind, at least from my perspective, for that triangle. Um, he wanted to create an untrustworthy triangle. And it's not just it wouldn't be fair to blame solely the objects for being untrustworthy. Um, when I look at this, one of the interesting things about um, specific objects, the 1965 essay by Donald Judd, is um, it's not so much that it's a terrific and timeless piece of art criticism that stands up today as a beautiful piece of writing. It kind of doesn't. It's really listy. Um, the style is very um, sub-Gertrude Stein. It lumps a lot of things in together. It doesn't necessarily make a lot of clear distinctions. And for something called specific objects, it makes a lot of generalizations. But what it does do is it provides a beautiful time capsule of a point where certain ideas were in crisis in a way that we can't really imagine today. Um, it mattered in 1965 whether something was a painting or a sculpture in a way that it doesn't. And something like this, even though it came along two years um, later in 1967, um, would have fallen under the rubric of uh, Judd's specific objects as being neither painting or sculpture. Although I'm sure if you look this up in our museum database, it's sculpture. It, you pack it like sculpture. Um, it stands out from the wall about a foot. Um, but you hang it like painting. It's frontal-like painting. I want you to take a look at Christie's sign again. 
And I want you to look at the untrustworthy photo that um, accompanies it. It's untrustworthy because it doesn't really give you a sense of what's going on in the two indentations which the title tells you the piece is about. And yet, Art Schwager basically designed this to photograph badly. He designed it to be so aggressively frontal that you want to look at it just straight on like that straight down the middle. He wanted that hard symmetry. And um, that frontality is something you associate with painting. But the, um, the three-dimensionality three of it, even though you can't go around all the way to the back and you can't see the top of it, um, that's something you associate with sculpture. But these indentations, are a device that Art Schwager used um, repeatedly as sort of receptacles for vision. Um, he also did a series of drawings, um, kind of cartoonish drawings, um, sort of like if um, the um, Playboy and Esquire cartoonists um, of the day um, got really intellectual and really conceptual. He made, I think, dozens if not hundreds of drawings of rooms that had six items in them. A rug, a basket, a table, a mirror, a door, a window. And he had very schematic ways of representing them. And one of the ways he represented the mirror was by having a frame that tilted in with these trapezoidal inserts toward this plane. And of course, since they were all drawings, you couldn't see anything. But it was understood conceptually that it was supposed to be a mirror, that it was supposed to say something to you, that it was so, supposed to reflect something back to you. And, um, what this reflects back to me is disease. When I went up to Art Schwager's um, most recent Whitney retrospective, which closed at the beginning of February, I spent probably, I had big plans for the day. I was gonna see a whole bunch of stuff, but I didn't want to stay, pay to stay overnight, and I took the bus up in the morning, and I don't like getting up too early in the morning. Um, I ended up spending five hours in the Whitney, and about four hours just on the third floor of the Whitney where the Art Schwager show was, and about two hours in two rooms the size of maybe this room and that room that showed um, what he was doing in the first decade of his maturity. And if I could reduce the experience that I had, and I do think that what's really important about what museums do um, is that they provide you a place to have an experience with the art in physical space. As our world becomes more and more mediated by images such as that one, which Art Schwager knew would be the only one that would be acceptable and knew would be lousy, um, and did it deliberately, and did it because, yes, he's messing with you. Um, what the museum offers is a chance for you to stand on your own two feet, use the tools that you bring with you, the history that you bring with you, the things you know, the things you don't know, and bounce them off these objects that are made to be difficult, are made to be exciting. And for about two hours, I was in just this state of exhilaration in these two rooms in the Whitney. And it was this state that I associated with what it was like to be a writer. It was sort of the headspace I liked being in back in the days when I was writing alternative journalism. Um, and Art Schwager has got these objects, he's perfected them, he's perfected their design to the point that there's something 
unassimilable, something unknowable about them, at the same time that they're really definite and they're very obvious and everything is right there in front of you. And if you're the sort of person that likes to live in that contradictory space and likes to find um, a certain kind of intellectual freedom in that space, um, then you know you probably would have been the right sort of person to be an alt-weekly critic in the time that I was an alt-weekly critic. Um, but there was also one sentence that was um, sort of rattling through my head as I was looking at all of this stuff. And that is, you are not to be trusted. And I think that Archwager's best work forces you into this. Um, when I stand directly on the center and look down the line at this, what I have is the frontality of what, for lack of a better term, because this is neither fish nor fowl, neither painting nor sculpture, is the picture plane, but which is also the frame for these receptacles for vision. I find myself wanting to apprehend both this framing device and these indentations at the same time. And no matter how many times I look at it, and I've probably spent hours with this piece, I want this space to be continuous. I want it to join up. There is a feeling of wholeness there that is denied me by the fact that it's basically mocking a diptych painting with two receptacles for vision. And another thing is he's made it just the right thickness that there's absolutely no satisfying way from the standpoint of proportion that he could have joined this and still given it the same integrity that it has as an object. And so it's an untrustworthy object. It wants to be two things at once. It wants you to feel that you want two things at once. And it wants to keep you there. And it wants to tell you that you are not to be trusted. And the reason I keep coming back to that is because um, this, is, this is the part where it's going to get a little bit um, strange and a little bit too personal. Um, but the last time objects had so loudly said to me, you are not to be trusted, was over Memorial Day weekend last year when I voluntarily committed myself to the, um, well, what for lack of a better term my wife and I have come to call medical prison. Um, Lest you think that ideas are not serious things and that they are not things that they cannot affect you, um, I mean, ideas can, as a writer, let's get back to that live in your head title, which is a wonderful title for when attitudes become form. As a writer, you do live in your head. You spend a lot of your time there. And what had happened is starting about this time last year, my ability to live in my head had started slowly draining away. Um, I was losing the ability to sleep. I was losing the ability to dream. I was becoming uncomfortable with being in my head. And my head was my favorite place. It was where I really lived from 94 to 2004, back when alternative journalism, art criticism, was still a possibility. And it had not been annihilated by the faster, stupider culture of the internet. And I spent a lot of time on the internet, and I'm now responsible for a lot of this problem. And um, I apologize, but... Um, just because you lose something, it doesn't mean that you were wrong. And it doesn't mean that it doesn't hurt like hell to want to have it back. And so I've been struggling for the better part of a decade with what it's like to get back to that space. 
and eventually it wound me up in the hospital because um, I realized that as I had less and less of a purchase on who I was inside my head just because I was too tired to think clearly. I was too tired to stand straight. I was too tired to walk without staggering. Um, after a while, you begin to think that what you had, which was what you lived for, was something that you can never have again. And I realized that I started having escape fantasies, and these escape fantasies sort of congealed into plans. And then one day at work, I realized that although I wasn't one given to a gesture, and I'm really not one given to planning. After 25 years, my wife and I still find dinner somewhat of a surprise. It shows up every day, and we don't really know what we're going to do about it. Um, but I, I had a plan for how to make a clean break with the life I could no longer have. And it involved hanging myself under the porch next to my house. Again, just a plan, never made a gesture. But I had a note in my head, never wrote it down, not this life or any other, because I feel that fig people get smug about mental illness because they think it can't happen to them. And I know that I used to be smug even as an early insomniac about um, how serious the problem could be for people whose insomnia was really full-blown, and I would like to make a public apology for a review, a review I wrote in 2003 about a show titled Insomnia at the National Museum of the Women and the Arts. I'm sorry, all of the art was still lousy except for Louise Bourgeois, but I completely underestimated the seriousness of your illness, and I'm sorry. But anyway, when I was in the hospital, all the fixtures of the hospital are there to tell you one thing. You are not to be trusted. In the showers, there's no space behind the towel bars because you are not to be trusted. The windows, there's no way even to get at the gratings that are over the windows because you are not to be trusted. Um, In the first room they put me in, there wasn't a sharp angle, like right here between the floor and the ceiling. It was curved. In much the same way that there's not a hard angle here in the face of this archwalker. You expect there to be one, but it's curved. I don't know why he did that. And I never asked why they did that with the rooms um, at the hospital, but I think it's because they had to clean up after a lot of people who were not to be trusted. Well, suffice to say that after about five days in medical prison, you'll do just about anything not to be in medical prison. And um, you'll participate in really icky group therapy sessions that you really do not want to participate in, and you will try to help people who um, need something that you normally would be in no condition to give them and uh, or no position to give them because what helps you and what helps them are different things, and they try to help you, but they can't really help you, but you have to pretend like they're helping you just so you can get out of medical prison, and you can one day Again, take possession of your own head and climb back inside and feel comfortable there. But what you're left with is this residue that you were not to be trusted. And where in the hospital it's an accusation, and it's one that at first you deny, um, it's true. You realize that their concern is not misplaced. Otherwise, you wouldn't have checked yourself in. I wouldn't have checked myself in. Um, but when Art Schwager says, you are not to be trusted, he's saying something 
fundamental about what it is to be a human being walking around in physical space with binocular vision, which is another thing this piece is about, because you cannot see, he has it set up just at the right width, so you can't see clearly down the sides of the chambers. And he does that because I think he wants you to feel like there could be a space in there. Um, when Melissa Ho spoke about this show, she's the curator, uh, a couple of weeks ago, she was talking about this room in terms of the human body. And you can see why. You have the Rachel White Reed bed over there, um, which is scaled to the body of a child. You have the Christo storefront scaled to the body of an adult. Um, the um, Tooker Trompe over here um, is about reaching into illusionistic space. Um, again, with, with your body. Archwager famously said that um, sculpture is for the touch, painting is for the eye, and he wanted to do the opposite. He wanted to make sculpture for the eye and painting for the touch. And we haven't touched upon his painting, and we won't. But for someone who, for a long time, constituted his whole life around the life of the eye, um, having to, in some ways, step away from that has been a traumatic break. And trying to rebuild a way to be in the world without being the kind of writer I can no longer be, I have to come to grips with the fact that I'm not to be trusted. And when Archwager's work says that to me, I no longer consider it to be an accusation, but rather a source of comfort. It's an acknowledgement of a steady state that I must learn to inhabit if I am to remain comfortable in my own head. Um, any questions? It's okay, you can ask about medical prison. Um, I don't really know how to summarize that comment, but suffice it to say that Christy finds the uh, horror of the age beautiful, and um, so do I. I find this an amazingly beautiful piece, and not beautiful the way almost anything else in the world is beautiful. Um, the only th other things that are beautiful the way this is beautiful, and beautiful for... Um, superficial reasons and for very profound reasons, for structural reasons and for illusionistic reasons, the only other things like that were made by Richard Archwager. Um, I was very um, perked up or my interest was very increased by what you said about his previous life before he was an artist uh, with his um, interest in precision and craft um, and process. Um, and I'm curious to know if that carries through his career um, until he's, you know, deceased. Okay, so the question is, do the concerns from Archwager's previous life, his concerns with precision and craft and process, carry through his career? And the answer to that is an exultant yes, they do. And what's so wonderful about it is that Archwager is a guy who can't quite let go of certain ideas and can't quite get past them. And there are some people for whom getting stuck is just that. It's nothing more than a block. But for Archwager, he keeps returning in cyclical fashion to um, ideas that uh, he's worked with before. And always there's this idea 
of, um, especially in his sculpture, which um, I think remained strong even into his 80s at a time when I'd argue that his painting did not. Um, there is a case to be made for his paintings and it's made eloquently in the catalog uh, or his late paintings. Uh, I think his early paintings are fantastic. Not his real early paintings, but his first mature ones on Celotex, um, which is another ugly industrial material he repurposed. But um, yeah, craft mattered a great deal to him. Another artist that um, is uh, sort of an insider's outsider and who has an extremely different sensibility, but um, who you'll also find linked with Art Schwager uh, and who I'm also a real fan of is H.C. Westerman. And for him, these ideas of craft and process and hand making were a rebuke to the destruction that he saw as a soldier in World War II and I believe in the Korean War. Um, with, with Art Schwager, I think that a well-crafted object um, is a way to assert humanity and it's also it's another way to mess with you because his concerns are primarily intellectual, but he wants to incarnate them in these sort of impossible physical objects. And he doesn't want to do it in a glib way. He's never interested in an optical illusion. He isn't interested in these little perceptual tricks that can be written off. He wants them to be more prolonged, they're, they're not cute. Um, you've noticed I have a tendency to ramble, but um, <laughs> that's sort of where I am with that. Somewhat related to that, I mean, how do you tie that in with his contemporaries, Donald Judd, Lichtenstein, etc.? Okay, so the question is, how do you tie that in with his contemporaries, um, Donald Judd, Lichtenstein, um, etc.? Personally, I think for um, Lichtenstein, craft became a trap. I think he had, um, I, 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 and again, speaking for myself, not speaking for the Hirschhorn, um, the party line used to be that Andy Warhol was really great from like 62 to 67, and then the rest was crap, and Roy Lichtenstein was great and developed all the way through. Right now, those positions have sort of reversed. And if you went over to the National Gallery and saw their Lichtenstein, I thought the first couple of galleries were just like jaw-dropping, amazing. And then once he got into the sculpture and the deco stuff, um, after a while, he's just sort of ringing changes. He's an example, I think, of someone who has an idea and gets stuck, and it's just stuckness. And he's not really getting anywhere. He's not developing new ideas. He's just developing new looks. Um, the National Gallery some years ago had a print retrospective and it really got kind of depressing because it would be like, well, this is the very first time in his print oeuvre that Lichtenstein used this kind of metallic tape or, you know, or whatever. It got down to a really um, sort of absurd level of novelty that didn't really add up to anything. Um, now, Judd was someone um, for whom... Um, craft remained extremely important and if you've ever seen um, some of his late plywood boxes, Dia has a set of them with all these planes tilted into them. I don't think he's messing with you psychologically the way that Art Schwager is, but um, he is creating specific objects. He remained true to the idea of the specific object and he demanded a very high level of craft. He didn't always do it himself. You don't have to. Um, Art Schwager at this stage, um, I believe, was working for himself. Later on, as his career bloomed, especially in the late 80s, he would have a large studio and then still later it would shrink back again. Um, and uh, he went through phases where he 
had a studio and other times where he just sort of shut it down and just drew for a number of years uh, when he was doing the um, uh, rug, basket, etc. Um, series. Um, What about Saul LeWitt? Were they acquainted? Um, if I were an art historian, if I were a curator, I would know the answer to that question. Um, I do not. Um, I do think um, that for LeWitt, you know, he started out with the idea that um, the work was the instructions and it could be executed by anybody. It turned out that later he decided he demanded a level of facture that just anybody couldn't do. Um, and so he died in what, I guess 2008, but his work lives on licensed by his state and there are people who are allowed to install LeWitts and who have been trained to install the wits. And um, so what started out as conceptual um, became something else. He wanted something tighter. And if you, if you saw his like 2000 retrospective, I saw it at SF MOCA, um, it, it's kind of marvelous what you can do when you delegate responsibility, when it doesn't have to be all on you. What I love were particularly the ones that were not um, geometric and the way that we think of sort of hard geometries, but the ones where it was all loopy and there would be these walls that were just towering. And it was like delegated art of the insane. <laughs> Which I thought was sort of a lovely idea because as far as I know, Solowit was an extremely level-headed guy. I'm, I do not mean to imply by my own personal reaction that Archwager was not a level-headed guy. As far as I know, you know, okay, he may have had four wives. Um, he has said that his life is messy, but I don't know that he was ever unhinged. <laughs> Wouldn't want to leave that, um, that taste in your mouth. <laughs> This isn't a question, this is really an observation. I think it's so interesting, I'm so glad that you brought up the concept of the disease in this because um, before, you know, this is my first impression of, of this work and before I knew its title, I never really saw it as indentations, but in fact, um, that on the other side, there are projectors within those two squares looking out at us. And it's interesting to think of those two perspectives, the looking into and looking out of, and the projection versus observation, and what's in between is this disease, and the disease between those two perspectives. I think that's completely valid, um, also because this trapezoidal framing device was what he used in his mirror drawings. Uh, he is very much interested in the object looking back at you. And of course, on a literal level, that doesn't happen. But as you experience it, that's exactly what happens. You know, I'm not saying when the objects were talking to me that I had auditory hallucinations. That was never my problem. I know people who have that problem. Um, <laughs> but uh, what I'm saying is that they spoke to me in much the same way, like if you've ever read Russell Hoban's 1974 novel, Kleinzeit, um, Everything talks to him, and he has conversations with the hospital. It's more like a literary device. And if you are comfortable spending a lot of time in your own head and interesting things happen there, um, you find things talking back to you. And it is all reflections of you, and it's things that project in and bounce back out. Another interesting thing about what you just said, uh, Caroline, is that there is this piece that was um, made in a very similar blue formica called Logos. Um, 
which I believe is a made-up word that's sort of a combination of logo and locus. And um, it was from the same year, 67. Absolutely magnificent piece with much of the same stuff going on, but it refers not to the eye but to the ear. They say it's based on a sound amplifier. It's actually like, imagine a prism shape with um, the points all lopped off, and then imagine these indentations inset into opposite sides. Like if you've ever seen um, stage monitors, it's sort of like a two-sided stage monitor. And he again did this thing with the top of it that's like the center part of two indentations here where, um, you know, I wanted to try to stand over and not trigger the um, guards or the alarms at the Whitney and see if I could sort of see both of these planes that existed on either side of um, Logos, and he's put it so you can't, and you just barely can't, and it's that wanting to, and he, he knows how badly you want to. <laughs> Any other questions, comments? One observation that when I, look at, when I looked at that object at first, in, when you were talking about it being mounted on the wall like painting, if it had been mounted on the floor like sculpture, at waist height, it would be a double sink with formica and the two holes, and it's just looking at the, the, the substance that it's made of. It just... Yeah, that's a very good observation, that if instead of being wall mounted, it had been a floor piece, it would have been like a double sink. Um, Melissa has done some incredibly smart things with the relationships that she has staged between pieces. Um, I don't know if it's conscious or subconscious, but you know, there's a Gober sink piece right in the next room on this wall. Um, I think that works. Um, also, I would be remiss if I did not point out the relationship between this object, which has an illusionistic surface and physical space, um, and the tooker, which has um, basically a more physical surface because um, it's uh, this tempera on fiberboard and an illusionistic space. If you're really if you get to a point where you're really sensitized to these things, I like walking into this room, looking at this, staring at it for a long time, and then wheeling around and looking like that, uh, looking at that, and every single time without fail, I just feel my stomach drop. I have a physical reaction to the difference in scale and the shift in space from something literal to depicted, and it's, it's really kind of uncanny. And uh, it's interesting because um, at one point when we were bouncing around the press release, the term uncanny came up and uncanny doesn't really technically apply to any work in this show except possibly the Roxy Payne mushrooms, new fungus crop back there. But some of the relationships in here are uncanny. When Melissa was talking about the body, um, and you think of this butter, I was down here last night um, when I was deciding if I was going to tell you what I really thought about or if I was going to do a proper gallery talk. <laughs> and I decided that I would try telling you what I really thought about. But it occurred to me that um, the one way to make these two spaces whole would be to remove this center bar and then it becomes um, the relationship between that and that with the butter as a body and this as kind of like um, a casket. Um, you know, it's not literal and it's almost putting too fine a point on it to even mention it, but that relationship is there. It may be one of these things that I spoil for you just by speaking it aloud. That happens a lot in art. Um, and so I'm not saying that um, words don't sometimes get in the way. But um, I also am a great believer in the power of forgetting. 
And um, so if you can forget I ever said that, and, and, and then come across it maybe in a couple, you know, right before the show closes, that should give you enough time to forget everything I've said. Um, then it may happen for you. And what I really want to drive home, it's all about what happens for you in a museum. Um, these aren't just containers for objects. They are arenas in which you enact the intellectual and emotional dramas of your life if you are the right sort of person for it. And the way you find out if you're the right sort of person, people like to think of contemporary art as really exclusive. We live in a city of largely free museums. If you want to know if you're the type of person who can respond to contemporary art, there's nothing keeping you. You just have to invest yourself. You have to know that it may take a lot of time. And you have to know that it's not without risk that art can wreck your life and it can rebuild it. And um, that that kind of risk is worth it. I would like to add a voice of confirmation to that. Um, I've had two traumatic brain injuries to my right frontal lobe, and art is in the process of rebuilding my life. Okay, um, if you don't mind me repeating that, just to make sure that we, we have it. You say you've had two traumatic brain injuries to your right frontal lobe, and that art is a way of rebuilding your life. Yeah, it absolutely is. Um, and the art that you use to rebuild yourself, it isn't always for someone else. Um, you'll know if it is for someone else. It doesn't have to be for anyone else. When, you know, a lot of the things that I started um, thinking about before I decided that I really couldn't leave writing alone anymore because I started out, I don't have training in this. I was a physicist. One of the reasons I respond to, or I was a physics major, I was a failed physicist. Let me be more clear about that. I dropped out of grad school after three semesters. I was barely a physicist. I was not a very good physicist, and the world needs none of those. Um, but uh, I do think that something happens. People are always talking about science art overlaps, and um, I really think that they are fundamentally different ways of seeing the world. And I think that if you grow up with one kind of training, with a kind of scientific training, and then turn your back on it um, the way that Art Schwager did, and you know, more humbly, the way that I did, um, you're never free of the things that have structured your mind. You um, you end up learning about things, taking them in differently from people who say were artistic since they were kids. I was not. I was um, visually illiterate until I was 19, and I didn't start writing until I was 27, which is kind of late. We done? I guess we're done. Thank you. <laughs>